As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Good evening. My name is Isabella Rajai, and I'm a freshman here at Hillsdale, planning on studying French and journalism. And I have the honor tonight to introduce Ms. Heather McDonald. Ms. McDonald is the Thomas W. Smith Fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a contributing editor of City Journal. She earned a BA from Yale University an MA in English from Cambridge University, and a JD from Stanford Law School. She writes for several newspapers and periodicals, including the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the New Criterion, and Public Interest, and is the author of four books, including The War on Cops, How the New Attack on Law and Order Makes Everyone Less Safe, and The Diversity Delusion, How Race and Gender Pandering Corrupt the University and Undermine Our Culture, forthcoming September 2018. I had the honor of participating in Ms. McDonald's Pulliam Fellow class this past week and a half, and I have to say, she is an incredible woman. She is a fearless journalist, and she has showed us that no topic is untouchable. And so, please join me in welcoming Ms. Heather McDonald. Thank you very much, Reggie. You get an A. <laughs> it's been a privilege to teach at Hillsdale these past two weeks and to meet your wonderful students. I keep having to pinch myself to grasp that I'm at a place where teaching Shakespeare and Milton is not about to lead at any minute to a strident protest against cis-normative, patriarchal, racist privilege. It's heaven. I didn't know it existed. I want to thank Professor Miller for inviting me and give special thanks to Margie King for making my visit here so enjoyable. Now, I've been speaking on college campuses other than Hillsdale recently. You know what that means. I've received the walkout, the storm, the stage, and at Claremont McKenna College in California, the blockade that prevented anyone from attending my talk. At Columbia Law School, a student gave me the finger during the entirety of my talk. So-called students of color at Pomona College called me a, quote, fascist, white supremacist, war hawk, transphobe, queerphobe, classist, and ignorant of interlocking systems of domination that produce the lethal condition 
conditions under which oppressed peoples are forced to live. <sighs> End quote. So to actually have an audience still in its seats and apparently willing to listen is an unusual experience for me that's going to take me a few minutes to get used to. At these other venues, I was speaking about the police. Tonight, however, I'm going to address a different but equally volatile topic, the fallout from the Me Too movement. Our world is about to be transformed, thanks to Me Too. I'm not referring here to a cessation of sexual predation in the workplace. If that were the only consequence of the movement, it would clearly be a force for good. But its effects are going to be more sweeping and more destructive. Me Too is going to unleash a new torrent of gender and race quotas throughout the economy and culture on the theory that all disparities in employment and institutional representation are due to harassment and bias. The resulting distortions in decision-making will be largely invisible. We will usually not know of those superior candidates for a job who are passed over in the drive for gender parity. But the net consequence will be a loss of American competitiveness and scientific achievement. Pressures for so-called diversity, of course, defined reductively by gonads and melanin, are nothing new. Since the 1990s, every mainstream institution has lived in terror of three lethal words, all white male. Just one of those damning epithets alone can produce paroxysms of self-abasement. Silicon Valley startups and science labs quake before the label, all or mostly male. Their varied ethnic demographics earn them no protection from the diversity racket. The New York Times recently criticized the board of fashion giant H&M for being, quote, entirely white. We can therefore infer that there were females on the H&M board, or else the Times would have broken out the biggest gun of all, entirely white male. When those two categories of alleged privilege white and male, overlap. An activist is in the diversity sweet spot. His power over an institution at its zenith. But however pervasive the diversity imperative was before, the Me Too movement is going to make the previous three decades look like the golden age of meritocracy. No mainstream institution will hire, promote, or compensate without an exquisite calculation of gender and race ratios. Males in general, and white males in particular, will have to pass a very high bar of qualifications in order to justify further deferring that halcyon moment of gender equity. Hollywood and the media are already showing the Me Too effect. At this year's Oscars Awards lunch, the president of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences prefaced his remarks by noting that he was a, quote, 75-year-old white man. President John Bailey was trying to get out ahead of the curve, since if he hadn't pointed out this shameful status, feminist crusaders in the press and the industry would have done so for him. Witness actress Natalie Portman's sneer 
in presenting the Best Director Prize at the 2018 Golden Globe Awards. Quote, and here are the all-male nominees. Such shallow bean counting is now going to become the automatic response to any perceived lack of diversity in entertainment. Naturally, Bailey announced reparations for the Academy's predominant white male status. Henceforth, it would, quote, balance gender, race, ethnicity, and religion in all its activities and would double its female, female and minority members by 2020. This was not enough, of course. Outside the lunch, the Hispanic Media Coalition protested the lack of Hispanic representation among Oscar nominations and acting roles. The prospect of left-wing entertainment moguls having to sacrifice their box office judgment to identity politics is an unalloyed pleasure <laughs> and of little consequence to the society at large. But quotaizing, sadly, will hardly be limited to Hollywood. Major publishing houses are analyzing their author lists by gender and race and making publishing decisions accordingly. What books get reviewed and who reviews them is going to be increasingly determined by gender and race. There are no major newspapers that are not tallying reporter and op-ed bylines as well as the topics they cover by gender and race. In 2005, professional feminist Susan Estrich preposterously accused editor Michael Kinsley, then running the Los Angeles Times opinion pages, of excluding female writers. Naturally, Estrich ignored the fact that males are disproportionately interested in public affairs, as demonstrated by lopsided sex ratios among op-ed submissions and letters to the editor. 87% of contributors to Wikipedia are male. There are no gatekeepers at Wikipedia. Contributions are anonymous and open to all. Wikipedia is therefore a perfect natural experiment, testing which sex, on average, is more oriented towards highly fact-based realms without the possibility of anyone shouting that sexist gatekeepers are keeping out all those would-be female wiki contributors. Now, however, sterile bean-counting exercises such as Estridge's have gone in-house. In response to the Me Too movement, the New York Times created a, quote, gender editor who presides over a, quote, gender initiative to infuse questions of gender throughout all the Times coverage. A recent front page product of this Me Too initiative covered the earth-shattering problem of NFL cheerleaders. To wit, they have a dress code and are forbidden from fraternizing with players. Despite these allegedly patriarchal conditions, females beg to be hired to the puzzlement of the Times. Corporate boardrooms, executive suites, and management structures are going to be scoured for gender and race imbalances. Diversity trainers are already sensing a windfall from Me Too. 
Gender diversity and inclusion were the dominant themes at this January's World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. The conference was chaired exclusively by women. Windows were emblazoned with slogans like, diversity is good for business, and gender equality is a social and economic issue. CEOs shared their techniques for achieving gender equity. It's actually quite simple, explained the CEO of Hilton. Pay managers based on their record of hiring and promoting females and minorities. Never mind that by introducing irrelevant factors such as race and gender into an evaluation process, you will inevitably get less qualified hires. U.S. banks and financial institutions are facing pressure from shareholder groups to release data on the number and compensation of females and minorities in their upper ranks. A confession. I vote against any female in a board proxy ballot because I know that the pressure for gender proportionality drives the selection of nominees. Immediate punishment befalls anyone in business who has the courage to criticize the war on merit. The chief creative officer of advertising firm MNC Saatchi wrote in October 2017 that he was, quote, bored of diversity being prioritized over talent, end quote. Saatchi atoned for this heresy with a frenzy of female hiring and promotions. Amazingly, a white male actually squeaked into the presidency of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York this month to the outrage of diversocrats. Don't be surprised if he's the last white male to do so. New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand sniffed, quote, the New York Fed has never been led by a woman or a person, color, a person of color, and that needs to change, end quote. The new Fed president's progress, as the New York Times called it, in, quote, diversifying the senior leadership of the Federal Bank, Reserve Bank of San Francisco, undoubtedly made his unfortunate race and sex more palatable to the search committee. Me Too enforcers are even going after classical music. New Yorker music critic Alex Ross triggered outrage against the Chicago Symphony Orchestra and the Philadelphia Orchestra in February when he tweeted that they had programmed no female composers in their 2018-2019 season. Never mind that the Chicago Symphony Orchestra was even then performing Jennifer Higdon's Low Brass Concerto at, Concerto at Carnegie Hall, a piece commissioned by the Chicago, Philadelphia, and Baltimore orchestras. It is ludicrous to suggest that these institutions are discriminating against female composers, but Ross and his followers demand affirmative programming quotas. The public radio show performance today picked up the theme and ran a series of programs in March about gender and racial inequities in classical music. At a time of diminishing classical music audiences, it is profoundly irresponsible to direct the poison of identity politics at our most precious musical institutions. Doing so only encourages potential young listeners 
and culturally ignorant philanthropists, I'm thinking of you, Bill Gates, to stay away. The fact is, over most of music history, the greatest composers have been male. No amount of digging through score archives, however useful that enterprise may be for discovering unfamiliar works, is going to unearth a female counterpart to Bach, Mozart, Beethoven, Schubert, Chopin, or Brahms, among other geniuses. So what? We should simply be down on our knees in gratitude for the music that these geniuses created. Orchestra boards will pay penance for their own inadequate diversity by a mad rush on female conductors whose, whose numbers are minuscule. It was already difficult two years ago to land a U.S. conducting position for a universally esteemed white male conductor, reports his agent. Now it would be nearly impossible, the agent believes, adding, quote, if I had a trans conductor, I'd be rich. <laughs> Academia, the source of identity politics, will double down on its diversity quotaizing in the wake of Me Too. In March, the Chronicle of Higher Education and the diversity chair of Stanford University's history department went into diversity meltdown over a history conference that Hoover Institution fellow Neil Ferguson had organized. Though Ferguson had invited females to speak, none had accepted. Not good enough. Ferguson should have suspended the conference entirely unless he could persuade females and minorities to participate, according to the Stanford History Diversity Chair. Naturally, this diversity bureaucrat did not identify any scholarly gaps that resulted from the actual lineup. Stanford University was itself so shaken by this calamitous panel that it issued a statement on behalf of the president and provost assuring the public that it had made its concerns about the lack of diversity known to the organizers. The STEM departments, science, technology, engineering, and math, have been under enormous pressure from the federal government to hire by gender and race. Now they are creating their own internal diversity enforcers, notwithstanding the massive diversity bureaucracy that already has taken over universities as a whole. UCLA's engineering department now has its own diversity dean. The director of UCLA's Women in Engineering program justified this sinecure with the usual role model argument for gender and race conscious decision making. Quote, female students let me know how much they appreciate seeing a woman of color in front of their classroom, she told the UCLA student newspaper. Question, why not appreciate seeing the most qualified scholar in front of your classroom? Any female student who thinks she needs a female professor in order to envision a scientific career has declared herself a follower rather than a pioneer, and a follower based on a characteristic that is irrelevant 
to intellectual achievement. If it really were the case that a role model of the same gender is necessary to succeed, it would be impossible to alter the gender balance of a field, assuming that such a mission is worthwhile. Hint, it is not, absent a finding of actual discrimination. Marie Curie did not need female role models to investigate radioactivity. She was motivated by a passion to understand the world. That should be reason enough for anyone to plunge headlong into the search for knowledge. Silicon Valley is a Me Too bonanza waiting to happen. It is not for nothing that the Mountain View headquarters of Google is referred to as the Google campus. The culture of the Silicon Valley behemoth is an echo chamber of shrill academic victimology. Managers and employees reflexively label dissenters from left-wing orthodoxy misogynists and racists. It is assumed that the lack of proportional representation of female, black, and Hispanic engineers at the company is due to bias on the part of every other type of engineer. In August 2017, Google fired computer engineer James Damor for writing a memo suggesting that the lack of 50-50 gender proportionality at Google and other tech firms may be due not to bias, but to different career predilections on the part of males and females. He cited solid psychological research establishing that on average, males and females are attracted to different types of work. Males to more abstract, idea-centered work, females to more human-centered relational activities. Damore was not disparaging the scientific skills of the female engineers at Google. He was trying to explain why there were not more of them. Nevertheless, Google accused Damore of using harmful gender stereotypes that put Google's females at risk of trauma. Google's adoption of the rhetoric of academic victimology to justify firing Damore was bad enough. But in January 2018, the National Labor Relations Board released a memo upholding Google's actions on the same grounds. Damore, it claimed, had engaged in discrimination and sexual harassment by employing, quote, harmful gender stereotypes. The reasoning behind the memo puts every academic scientist researching the biological and psychological differences between the sexes at risk of his job. The ideological imperatives of feminism are trumping the search for scientific truth. This is a dangerous place for a society to be in. The next month, a former YouTube and Google recruiter further documented the quota mentality that now reigns in Silicon Valley. He had refused to obey an edict to purge white males from consideration for, from ent for entry-level engineering interviews. The recruiter was promptly fired. Google would rather not even know about potentially groundbreaking tech talent if it comes in the wrong color and shape. 
Such distortions of meritocracy will become even more intense following Me Too. The mad rush of investor funding into biotech fraudster firm Theranos was undoubtedly due in large part to the sex of its founder. Elizabeth Holmes claimed to have invented a mobile blood testing device. Even as her claims about this largely fictitious device unraveled, investors continued to give her unqualified support. Her blue-chip board boasted two former secretaries of state and then head of U.S. Central Command Jim Mattis, now Secretary of Defense. Hilariously, the Me Too-obsessed New York Times opined that it was, quote, surprising how long Holmes was allowed to operate before regulators stepped in. Actually, what is surprising is that they stepped in at all. Given the dominant narrative that the dearth of female startups is due to sexism on the part of venture capitalists and regulators, despite the billions of dollars that governments, companies, and foundations have poured into increasing the number of females in STEM, the gender proportions of the hard, of the hard sciences have not changed much over the years. This is to be expected, given mounting confirmation of the differences in interests and aptitudes between the sexes. Study after study has shown that females gravitate towards different types of jobs than men, as James Damore fatally observed. Females, on average, tend to choose fields that are perceived to make the world a better place, according to the common understanding of that phrase. A preschool teacher in the Bronx profiled by Bloomberg News exemplifies such a choice. She has a BA in neuroscience, but opted not to go to medical school so as to have an impact on poor and minority children. Her salary is a fraction of what she could earn as a clinical or research neurologist, but pay is not her top motivation for choosing a job, she said. Even within the broad STEM umbrella, Females seek jobs that are seen as directly helping others by a two-to-one ratio over males. Females make up 75% of workers in health-related jobs, but only 25% of workers in computer jobs, and 14% of engineering workers. Nearly 82% of obstetrics and gynecology medical residents in 2016 were female. But no one is complaining about gender bias against males. And in a resounding blow to the feminist narrative about bias in STEM, it turns out that the more gender equality in a country, the lower the percentage of females in STEM majors and fields. The more careers that are open to females, the less likely they are to choose math or science. Finally, there is the most taboo subject of all, the non-identical distribution of high-end math skills. Males outnumber females on both the bottom rung of math cluelessness and the top rung of math insight. In the U.S., there are 2.5 males in the top 0.1% of math ability for every female in that category. This is not a matter of gender bias and cultural conditioning. Gender differences in math precocity show up as early as kindergarten. 
Given these different distributions of interests and skills, the only way to engineer gender proportionality in the hard sciences is to put a ceiling on male hires, no matter how gifted, until enough females can be induced to enter the field to balance out the males. And indeed, the National Science Foundation seems to be moving in that direction. It is announced that progress in science requires a, quote, diverse STEM workforce. This is undoubtedly good news to China. As it furiously pushes ahead with its unapologetically meritocratic system of science training and research. The rest of us, however, should not be so thrilled. The Me Too movement has uncovered real abuses of power, but the solution to those abuses is not to replace valid measures of achievement with irrelevancies like gender and race. Ironically, the best solution to sexual predation is not more feminism, it is less. By denying the differences between men and women, and by ridiculing the manly virtues of gentlemanliness and chivalry, and the female virtues of modesty and prudence, feminism dissolved the civilizational restraints on the male libido. The boorish behavior that has come to light, such as bizarrely masturbating in front of female acquaintances, would have been unthinkable under a traditional concept of sexual propriety. Such crude exhibitionism would have been deemed a violation of the lady's modesty and the gentleman's dignity. Now, however, with ladies and gentlemen banished from our social universe and indeed our language itself, such behavior is apparently no longer unthinkable. Pace the feminists Western culture is, in fact, the least patriarchal society in human history. Rather than being forced to veil, females can parade themselves in as scantily clad a manner as they choose. Pop culture stars flaunt their promiscuity. Every mainstream institution is trying to hire and promote as many females as possible. As the Me Too moment swells the demand for ever more draconian diversity mandates, a finding in a Pew Research Center poll on workplace equity is worth noting. The perception of bias is directly proportional to the number of years the perceiver has spent in an American university, except for Hillsdale. <laughs> the persistent claim of gender bias, in other words, is ideological, not empirical. But after Me Too, it will have an even more disruptive effect. Thank you for your attention. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.